Welcome to episode 433 with my return guest, Janet Varney. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. MentalPod is uh, also the social media handle. You can follow us at on Twitter and Instagram. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash mentalpod. Um, and I always forget to mention the, if you go to our website, there's a forum as well. And um, there's some really great threads about a variety of, a huge variety of, of topics. And sometimes that can be a good way to connect to people if you're feeling isolated or feeling like you're the only one that's, that's dealing with something. Uh, I'm going to read some surveys before we get to the interview with, uh, with Janet Varney. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lavender and describing her depression. She writes, it feels like drowning, uh, it feels like drowning out in the ocean, uh, about her anxiety, like a cage, both crushing and trapping me about PTSD, like lightning, sudden and hot and painful and about being a sex crime victim ill, like ink stains spreading on my soul. Thank you for that. So descriptive. Uh, normally, I don't read uh, shame and secret surveys at the top of the show, but um, I, I wanted to read this one just because it's my podcast. Um, I don't think there's anything that's necessarily... Um, the, the, the surveys that I read after the interview can sometimes, uh, well, not sometimes, can be really heavy uh, and dark. Um, so if you find yourself avoiding those, um, you might want to fast forward through this one, though. I don't know if this would qualify as being as heavy or graphic as, as some of the ones uh, I read after the interview. Anyway, enough. Enough with the setup. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Shame Is My Name. She identifies as uh, straight. Uh, she's in her 30s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She had a boyfriend who was sexually, emotionally, and physically abusive to her. Uh, any positive experiences with the abuser? Yes, definitely. We share a huge bond in some way. I really believe he's my soulmate in a fucked up way, though I'd never get back together with him. The positive experiences used to be the one thing that kept me stuck in the relationship for 10 years. I would break up with him and then only remember the positive loving experiences that happened. It's so interesting because that is so much like uh, what the addict does or the alcoholic does is, you know, we romance the good times of being high or drunk and we forget about the, the terrible ones. Um, months or days later, I'd be back together with him. Eventually, the good times became less and less, and I finally realized this relationship needed to end for good. We've been broken up for a year and a half now, and I'm so much happier. Darkest thoughts. My sexual fantasies are so fucked up. I get the most turned on thinking about incest. Do you know how common that is? And it's not fucked up. What would be fucked up would be actually committing incest with, uh, you know, 
Anyway, uh, particularly an older father with their little daughter or son. I would never even do something like that in real life and don't even have the slightest attraction to little kids, but for whatever reason, that's what turns me on the most. You know, I, I mentioned that uh, a lot of times a theme will reveal itself uh, in the 10 or so surveys that I pick from every week from the Shame and Secret surveys. And the, the, the one that seemed to reveal itself um, this week is uh, women who are sexually turned on by uh, the idea of uh, an adult with a child or uh, something something similar to that. Um, Darkest Secrets. I stole money from my family business. It's awful, but I was working for my dad, and he was verbally abusive to me at work. He basically paid me very little, even though the plan was for me to be co-owner with him and that I'd be making lots of money. Yeah, never happened. I quit working there two months ago after being there a year. I still take money and feel an extreme amount of guilt and feel like I'm a terrible daughter. The other secret is I viewed child pornography a few times. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, Probably being roughly banged. The other sexual fantasy is having sex in the office. Sharing this makes me feel kind of dirty and embarrassed. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I treated my last supervisor terribly. I was manipulated by my co-worker who told me my supervisor had it out for me and that she didn't like me. This started to get me to be cold towards her. Don't get me wrong, this woman was really hard to get along with in general, but I feel like I went too far uh, many times with her. I've been thinking about writing her an apology, but never do because it feels like it would piss her off. What about writing an apology for you so that you can let go of that guilt? Um just a thought. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be happy, and I wish to find a wonderful man that I can settle down with. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I shared a lot of this with my best friend, not the sexual thoughts or fantasy stuff or the stealing. I would never share those with anyone. That would be very painful for me and painful for the other person. I I think depending on the person that you shared it with, I don't think it would pain, be painful at all, I think it could be freeing and liberating because, you know, the the um, things that you think and feel are are pretty uh, pretty common, and what we think and feel isn't immoral. It, it, it's what we do with those thoughts and feelings that that matters. That's where morality comes into it. Is the coping mechanism for those thoughts and feelings? That's where. You know, the rubber the rubber meets the road. Is that the right uh, rubber meets the road? I know it's not the rubber breaks. That's where the rubber breaks and everybody cries. <laughs> uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel a little bit of relief, especially sharing the sexual thoughts uh, part and deep secrets. I also feel a little irritated just because thinking back on how my ex treated me gets me so angry at myself for staying with him for so long. And then this is the part I really wanted uh, more than anything to read. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? For the person in an abusive relationship, no matter what anyone says, leaving an abuser is not black and white. It will take many attempts to leave. This person has become your source of everything. They isolate you to keep you under control, which makes it even harder to leave. Whatever you do, 
don't start hating yourself. Being in an abusive relationship is very much an addiction. It takes many, many tries to get sober off a person. This is a strong chemical reaction in your brain that you are trying to break. It is not easy. The moment I realized that nothing I said or did would change my ex ex's abusive behavior, that is when I left and never went back. Please read Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft. That is the one book that started waking me up to what was going on. And again, the name of that is uh, Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft. And I have not read that book, so I can't comment on, on it, but... Um, I was just very moved by by that survey, and I want to thank you for for filling that out. And if you guys haven't gone to the website and filled out surveys, there's about a dozen different surveys that you can take, and it really, really helps the show. Um, It helps us get to know you, because when people share things anonymously, you know, we really dig deep, and we really share those things that, that can very often bring comfort to somebody else who is suffering in silence and thinking they're weird or different or bad or or whatever. Uh, this is from a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself too tense to function and about her depression. She writes, dead weight hanging from my limbs and heart about being a sex crime victim. Feels like no one really cares, especially fraudulent, immature feminists. I'm not really sure what she means by that, um, but I wanted to read that because um, whenever I whenever I read something that uh, kind of makes me stop and think and be like, I need to examine this a little closer because I'm not really sure what this person is saying. Maybe you guys have some thoughts on it. Maybe um, the person who filled this out, if you're uh, if you're listening, uh, shoot me an email. I- I'd love to hear you expand on that. Uh, one of our sponsors for today is uh, Aura Smart Frame. It was selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, and it's the perfect gift for parents who are always asking you, hey, send more photos. With an Aura Frame, you can instantly share photos from your phone's camera roll to their frame. Uh, so a new family photos, uh, not photo, well, you could do photos. A new family photo appears every time they walk into a room, and it brightens their day. It also allows for unlimited family photo sharing, and it can hold an unlimited amount of memories. You can also create your own private social network that'll help you stay in touch and keep you connected to the people that you love, even if you're miles apart. It's a seamless tech, and that means a simple, stress-free setup. And it comes in a cool range of styles, from modern to classic and wood. And I got the one with uh, wood, and it is beautiful. It's it's real walnut. And uh, I love it. The thing, one of the things that I love about having one of these frames is you don't have to plaster photos all around the house. Um, you can change out the photos whenever you want. If you get tired of seeing your face, you can substitute some other ones in there. I'm always afraid that people are going to go, boy, he's got a lot of photos of himself. Um but I think my favorite thing about having it is it reminds me of all the people that I love and who love me in my life. And that, that makes me happy. So, um, yeah, check it out. 
Head to AuraFrames.com and use offer code MENTALILLNESS at checkout for $50 off. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com and offer code MENTALILLNESS for $50 off. And again, I'll put all the links to uh, stuff that we mentioned sponsor-wise on uh, on our uh, website under the show notes. As I've mentioned before, uh, BetterHelp.com is a sponsor of this show, a very, very important sponsor, and I use their online therapy every week, and I'm a huge fan of it. I, you know, I was, I was curious about, well, what's it going to be like doing video uh, therapy? Will it feel the same as being in the room as, as a therapist? And it, it feels every bit as connective to me as in-person therapy did. And I don't have to leave my house, which I really, really like. Um, so if you want to try it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire, and they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor uh, if they have one that they believe is right for you. And then you can experience a free week of uh, counseling. See if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. I'm a big fan of what they do. And then finally, this is a, a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Fiddle. And about her depression, she writes, everything in reality happens at dream speed for me because I'm awake, but actually asleep. I am always a step behind and not in the moment. And then a snapshot from her life. My parents have always and continue to treat me as an extension of themselves with no recognition of my autonomy or self-worth, coupled with constant criticism, even well into my 30s, which is why I have a hard time letting myself experience those things. I always quarter-jokingly tell people that my parents came to be good parents for the same reason and joy that someone might have when they invest in an expensive piece of furniture for the, quote, good room. I am mostly there to furnish their lives, not live mine or be fully myself. I am no better than the nice couches reserved only for entertaining polite company. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared. scared. And And we're we're just all all in in this together. (laughs) There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks are so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a sack of hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I want out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. I'm leaving that in. I hit record right before that (laughs) I was afraid of that. I was afraid of that. I'm here with... the woman who was the very first guest on on this year podcast, she uh, we were co-hosts on dinner and a movie for the last seven years. Yeah, for seven years. That's um, true, yeah. 
I haven't seen you in a while. It's probably I been know. five, five, six years. Um, Maybe. That's I mean, because I you were like on the we've run. We've seen each other. I was on the. Uh, please, I prefer lamb. Uh, you do. I was on the lamb. I thought yeah. you were vegan. Uh, no, no, no. I, in this con- in this particular case, I like to be compared to a lamb of God. Okay. So it's the the lamb and I are together in this. Oh, it's not nice. that I'm consuming the lamb yes. in any way. I only ate the bee <laughs> of the lamb. Boy, that is something my dad would enjoy. And only him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, her name is Janet Varney. Um, we were talking about what, what we could uh, do here. You got some personal stuff going on in your life. Not quite ready to talk about that yet, um, but we'll drag, drag you back in here uh, when, you, when you are. Uh, so I was thinking we have so much fun just being stupid. Let's do some some fears and loves. But uh, before I do that, I wanted to, um, in case people don't know who you are, you were the voice of Cora for many years. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were in uh, what, what was the name of this? <laughs> Dana's show, Dana Gould's show, was called Stand Against Evil, mm-hmm. and I played a demon fighting sheriff, mm-hmm. as you do. Uh, as you are want. As I am want, where I spent three wonderful years uh, putting on very high-waisted, unforgiving polyester <laughs> pants uh, and wearing a utility belt and running yes. around in the soup of humidity that is Georgia in the summer. Oh, my God. Did you uh, purchase those at uh, Unforgiving Pant? I did. I did. <laughs> they closed. Oh, no. Yes. Can yes. I... Is it a bad time to say I'm not surprised? <laughs> you know, you can say that okay. now. Yeah, Good. but they put all the money that they did earn, they put it into Unforgiving Shoe. Uh-huh. And they just sell one undersized shoe. <laughs> that doesn't look good for them. No. It, it does look good for them. Yes. They are wasting their inheritance. Yeah, although I'm sure there's some sort of sex niche online that they could find. Yes. Oh. Un- unfor- one, one Unforgiving Shoe, please. Gangbusters in Germany. Yeah. Gangbusters. Gangbusters. Yes. Yeah. Uh what was the uh, the other show that, that you're just the ended? Worst. You're yeah, the worst. You're the worst. I got to play an um, insufferable asshole character who arguably was the worst of the main characters. That had to have been was, fun to play. It was so fun. I can't imagine how fun it must be for a people pleaser to play somebody who is just an overt asshole. That's very true. It's a it's completely freeing. It feels great. She was so horrible. What did you... Were there any insights you had about yourself personally when you were playing that character? Oh, that's a good question. I think, um, yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I think, I think that, I think all of the, I think when you have the overlap and you're very similar to me in this way, which is that I, we are not out to hurt anybody, but we love to zing. And yes. we are very sarcastic, and it is a self-protection situation. Um, but but that overlap was interesting because mm-hmm. saying withering things, yes. um, whether you are kind of a, a shit person on a show or yourself and just trying to feel better for some reason and yes. kind of being tickled by your wit, yeah. uh, those things are like universal. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's they're they're jabs. They're jabs. They're jabs, and yeah. whether it's at the person that you're with, and it's a way of blowing off steam, or you know, just kind of lashing out at the world, it it's uh, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. And for years, it's the only coping mechanism I had, and I didn't understand that I was 
not considering what it felt like for somebody to be on the end of, of those. Yeah. Is that something that you, um, become aware of or do you feel like you're, you're pretty good about catching yourself if, if you're kind of needling instead think, yeah. of having a difficult conversation with yeah, somebody? Yeah. I think I, um, I think I don't, uh, do that as much in real life anyway but um but i do feel like i well you know what for me what i've noticed is the more the more stuff that's happened on the internet concurrent with me being some sort of figure that someone who doesn't actually personally know me feels like they know me whether it's Mm -hmm. because you know i'm sure you experience the same thing you have a podcast you're very personal on the podcast um the the kind of like blowing off steam that I think a lot of people do just watching someone on television and being like, wow, nice shirt, blah, blah, blah. Like, right. And sometimes that actually makes it out into the world and people are tweeting about it and stuff. I find now that that judgment, even if it's so cursory and like not important, if it's something as simple as a shirt or something as simple as, you know, the way someone's voice sounds or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, I find now that my automatic follow-up to that, if I mutter something to whoever I'm with when I'm watching it, is I'm sure they're a wonderful person in real life, <laughs> and I'm going to meet them next week, and right. I'm going to feel like garbage for tr- tossing off a remark that yes. was just because, – because now I know that people do that about me. Yes. And rather than go like, oh, it's happening all over, so I don't care if that's happening with me. I do care. Right. So that's transferred over to me going like, I guess I shouldn't, you know, be so careless as to just like pretend like they're not real people that would feel horrible if I said that to their yeah, face. Yeah, I, I sometimes I think uh, expect that person to to read what it is that you wrote yeah. or hear what you yeah. say. I mean, Hence, not I in, never put every, anything out into the world that way. Like, you know, there are moments I start my where day I, with that. <laughs> yeah. How many yeah. Let me do some quick judging yeah. for everyone to But I mean, you know, it's that that's that's it's something that people do with each other. I mean, you know what I mean? Like even just like I think Neil did that with someone on Neil Patrick Harris just like tweeted something light about something but it was like so and so or it's a bad example to pair him with Roseanne. But just those mm-hmm. moments where you're like, so-and-so looks like a cross between this and this. And in your mind, you just think, oh, this is just funny. I'm still in I'm high school and nobody steam. listens to me. Yeah, no one cares. And right. then everybody turns and goes, that's horrible. You can't say that. Or the smaller version of just saying like, well, that was shitty. That was sort of snipey right. and mean. And um, I've never done that. Uh, but I But I would hate to do it and then feel called out for it and then feel like I'm just a piece of shit because it's such a fleeting moment and everyone has those thoughts. Do you ever call people out for hurting your feelings? Mm. Or you just bar- do you just bury it down deep in your stomach I'm and sure smile harder? I'm sure it's true. Uh, I remember someone... I like, don't. I'm, I've been really lucky. I don't get a ton of criticism. I remember someone well, writing. You must be not on the internet. Yeah. Well, oh, you should read. Yeah. Oh, Janet. Oh no. Oh, it's a, it's a shit show. What people are saying, are saying about, about you. me. Yeah. Oh. There's so many websites so dedicated many. <laughs> to your <laughs> awfulness. Narcissism. I have to imagine there are because I know I'm the center of most people's universes, good or bad. Um. But yeah, I. Uh, I. Uh oh. Uh, Gracie is chewing on a cord. No. I think you should chew on Hey. Uh-uh. No, girl. Leave it. Yeah, that's a good chew. That's a good solid chew she's got going. Yeah. Um, 
she's like, who is this person I've only just met who thinks yes. that she has the authority to take that away from me and tell me not to? Uh, I think somebody said something about my laugh once. Like, listen, I get that you have a good time on Paul F. Tompkins' podcast, but if you could just take your laugh down a notch or two, it's very distracting. And um, and I immediately got so – I was so embarrassed. Uh, and then – I thought about all the times that now people say, I love hearing your laugh because yes. I know it's genuine. I'm and, one of them. You know, yeah. but but it, that's a perfect example of like so, you know, a, a thousand people could say something nice about the same thing that one person says something shitty about. And the, the shitty thing is what you carry around with you. you know? Yeah. There was no way for me to spin uh, the email I got years ago of a person wishing me cancer. <laughs> there was there was no way to go. Well, deep down. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Did someone really? Yes. During yes. dinner and a movie? Or? Yes. And I can't even remember oh, what, it, what it was. But the thing I try to remember is everybody is filtering stuff through their shit. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's not personal. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Uh, I can tell you about a terrible dream I had last night if you want to talk about fears and loves. Sure. Uh, because it's, because Please I don't God, have make nightmares. It, short. it will be very short. Uh, I just think it's funny because it feels like it has two classic elements of a nightmare, neither of which I commonly dream about at all. So I don't know why. Gracie, uh, no. I mean, it's a cord. Why wouldn't she want to chew it all day long? Yeah. It's so funny. She doesn't chew on anything. But of course, I sit down to record and yeah. she chews on the only thing <laughs> it, it, that I need her to not chew on. <laughs> well, now she's just casually licking the yeah. the bone. So that'll work. Um, Should I put her to uh, sleep? Should I put her down? I would. Yeah. Well, you know, Is that give Trump her five the gun? more minutes. Give her five more. Give her five okay. more. Yeah. I believe in giving people a chance <laughs> and dogs a chance. Uh, I, I woke up this morning. No, I woke up in the middle of the night from a terrible dream in which I went back to my old apartment in San Francisco, was going to stay there overnight, was had then found out that the apartment right above it had was on terrible. was a fire, was an, uh, an inferno. And then they put out the fire and I said... Um, how much damage has been done to the building overall. I don't see how I'm going to be able to stay in my old apartment if there was a terrible fire above. And the friend that I was with said, well, why don't we go up the back stairs to find out how bad the damage is? And we both took a step and plummeted into midair. And I grabbed the railing of a staircase and was hanging by my arm as I listened to my friend fall to her death screaming. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I woke up. Like hearing her scream. So I survived. I didn't you have a falling up, dream. You woke up turned on. <laughs> I woke up hot as can be. I woke up drenched in sweat and I couldn't let go of the idea that some... <laughs> you'll love this. This is the problem with being a, empathetic or having anxiety or having, you know, those kinds of feelings uh, that want to kind of skew in that direction is that I woke up and instead of just going... Oh, God, what a terrible dream. That was just a dream. My immediate next thought was, some people do fall to their deaths. And that's got to be absolutely horrible. Oh, my God. All the people that have died by falling off of something. And that is where I took it. And I couldn't fall back to sleep because I was then thinking about the real life examples of people. Like, I went straight to, like, the Hart family. They drove their children off a cliff. Like, that's what those kids were thinking was, God, no, no. Why? I can't stop this. I'm helpless. Like, I, these are the last few seconds of my life, and there's nothing I do to stop it. That's what I was thinking. Don't you think one of the little kids, though, in the car thought, yippee? <laughs> Not understanding? <laughs> That's so awful. So. I, I, I thought so. what you were going to say is you woke up and you thought to yourself, I could have done more. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, at least it was her is actually, no. Um, I could have and should have done more. I should have been there before to help put that fire out, before it burned back the back stairs. Well, let's use this as a segue to talk about fears. Yeah. I'm neither for, I'm not particularly afraid of fire or falling per se. So I don't know what those things mean, but I'm sure a good Jungian a- analyst would be able to talk about it, the fact that I dreamt about a fire that was happening somewhere close to me, but not to me, mm-hmm. not to something that belonged to me, but that something was uh, associated with something from my past and that I survived a fall, but watched like someone else die. I mean, I'm sure all of those it things probably somebody could represents. Say, it probably represents your fear that somewhere, someone, one time thought you were impatient. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. I mean, when I ordered that sorbet and I used the wrong French word when I was 16 and an exchange student, and she <laughs> looked at me and and said, that's <clears throat> stupid. You just said strawberry. Because I pointed to a, 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 a sorbet and said, is that... Is that strawberry? And she was like, that is so stupid. No, why would that be strawberry? That's mm-hmm. chocolate or whatever. Uh, I've never let that go. So it's probably that. I mean, that's what came to my mind when you said that. So it probably is. I can probably assume that it is that woman. I owe her an apology. I've <laughs> got to track her down. What What are some fears that you have? Some common reoccurring fears? And, and, you know, not necessarily fear of snakes, but, you know, maybe interpersonal things or existential things. Yeah. Well, I can't. I don't know if I can tease apart things like fear of snakes, which I don't have, uh, from what that there, there has that you know there are things that are probably at play there that are bigger issues. Um, I absolutely have had once I, I I I lived by myself for such a long time, and then now I don't live alone anymore, and the difference between how I feel safe wise. For, I never thought about it when I live by myself. But now that I do live with someone, when we're when he's out of town, I suddenly feel like that's the night that someone's going to come in and murder me, which doesn't make any sense because, again, I had no fears like that when I was by myself. So mm-hmm. just the the absence of the, the person I, I'm used to mm-hmm. has sort of drummed up some idea that I'm more that I'm now vulnerable right. in the exact same way that I was when I wasn't right. afraid of that. And I have had thoughts to myself where I'm falling asleep and I think to myself, when someone's breaking in to the house on this side of the house, I'm going to have a choice. And that's going to be that I either have to confront the burglar and take that risk, like by running out Mm -hmm. towards them to get to the car or to get to wherever, or running into the backyard where the garden spiders are. (laughs) Which one would I choose? I'm going to say go with the garden spiders. That is a genuine like bargaining, like a negotiation I have with myself where I'm like, look, those garden spiders are very plump. They build yes. those giant webs. Somehow they're always at face level yeah. and they're very hard to see until you're right up on them. If I'm going to have to plow through a bunch of like yeah. tensile garden spider webs, I-, I almost would rather deal with a human but wh- being. But what's the worst that could happen is you run with an open mouth. <laughs> the... <laughs> The queen spider, I don't even know if that's a thing, perfectly wedges itself in the back of your throat and lays a hundred eggs. Right. And all the yeah. little spiders crawl out for the rest of your life through yeah. your nose. Worst case scenario. Rendering you unhireable. <laughs> and, and offensive to some. And unlovable. And unlovable. I mean, yeah. 
Yes. You said it. I faced that burglar. Yeah. Maybe I can reason with the burglar. If the burglar sees that I'm just as broken inside as they are, yes. they'll realize that they don't want to rob me at all. Yeah, they just get, need a hug. Get, get, give them some tchotchkes. Just give them some tchotchkes. <laughs> yes. I got plenty. God yes. knows I got plenty of worthless yes. tchotchkes. Yes. Listen, Scarface, I think you just need a scented candle. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about cardamom? Yeah. Wait, what does cardamom smell like? Is that a smell that any of us would want to smell? Uh, or any candle I know it's a part. It's a part no, I don't okay. think it would be a good thing. I, see. I think cardamom is that. I know it's in an Indian spice, or at least it's in a curry. I know there's one that oh, cumin smells like bo. Yeah, cumin is very. Uh, yes, cumin is cumin is very specific yes. smell. I, and I don't it really know why, sticks but out of, from other things. Every morning I rub it under my arms. See, that's that might be your problem. Yeah. That might be your problem. What if I have thought that cardamom was like a movement by older women to try to get people to card them more so that they would feel younger at like a So bar. nice having <laughs> you. Go ahead and punch out. <laughs> and never speak to me again. <laughs> That uh, that was like a, a little dinner and a movie <laughs> moment that we had there. <laughs> I miss uh, how hard we used to laugh oh, God, doing that me show. Too. Me too. Me yeah. too. We had so much fun. It was wonderful. It was an amazing experience. I can't yes. believe that was one of my, you know, my. I had not lived in L.A. yet a year uh, when I got that show. And so I just had this amazing thing to look forward to. Um and when I'm in Atlanta, I think about it. I mean, I think about it every time. When I was there shooting Stan, I was living down right near where they used to put us up. So I was mm. going to eat at, you know, South City Kitchen and, mm. and passing Turner when I would go to mm. set and stuff. And so it's all very fresh for me because those all those memories get triggered all the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it, the, that part that part of it to me, and also we talked about this before the podcast started, which is that I don't have a great gauge for time passing. It's all... Mm become sort of nebulous to me. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things. Maybe it's just getting older where you kind of go, oh, it's been, a, it's been a good long time, but it mm -hmm. also doesn't feel like it's been that long for me yeah. in a way. Maybe and it's because I've had zero personal growth. Uh, I find that when I look up and I'm in a rocking chair and there's spider webs everywhere, <laughs> I've lost sense of, of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what were some of the issues when we did uh, the original episode, number one? Mm -hmm. One of the things you talked about was a condition that you had that you didn't understand and the therapist that you had had the very same thing yeah. and diagnosed you with it and it really, really helped you. What, yeah. was, what was the issue? Uh, depersonalization displacement syndrome. It's so funny. I just got an email from somebody that uh, said, can you please do an episode on derealization or depersonalization. Talk about, talk about what it was like having that and what helped Did you. Did you immediately write back and say, first of all, I'm insulted that you haven't listened to the very first episode of my podcast? It's not available. You would have had it. It's not? No. The back catalog, uh, oh I was not happy my. with the uh, uh, service that was offering it. And it was the, the amount of income oh. was... So minuscule. Yeah. I thought, well, let me just hold the back catalog and then occasionally I'll re release a best of episode. Because sometimes it. I do get a little uh, overwhelmed. And um, How many episodes have you done now? 430-something. Uh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, 
talk about what it felt like yeah. when you had it. Uh, well, I, so for me, it felt like, um, uh, it sort of felt like being high, um, when you don't want to be, or people talk about having like a bad pot experience where you mm -hmm. sort of, the, the way that it, it's, the way that it's, um, described a lot of the time is this sort of feeling like you're watching yourself do something. I've never had the feeling of, what I would consider to be astral projection, which, by the way, I really wanted to be able to do as a child. I was obsessed with it, and I used to lie in bed at night trying really hard to open up whatever part of yourself allows your soul to flood, to, to float above your body and then visit various places uh, before your uh, astral cord snaps you back into position. How old were you? I mean, what, however old I was when I first read about it, which probably was fourth grade, something like that. I, I'm halfway through my life. And I don't even know what that means. Yeah. And you knew what it it's, meant in fourth well, grade. Well, because I read a book about that. I read a book that it that featured the concept of astral projection. I got you. So I was like, this has got to be a real thing. You know what I would have done in fourth grade? I would have put that book down and said, I don't understand this. <laughs> <laughs> I was very, uh, very precocious. literate and precocious yes. for my age. So, um, uh, so I've never had the experience. And, and so I can't speak to... Whether or not that's sort of just the only way to describe it to someone because it's such an abstract existential feeling that it's too hard to describe any other way. You feel way. like you're outside of your body? For me, it's not that I'm outside of it because that idea of seeing – like. And I do think that that happens when people are sometimes abused or molested. Like perhaps there is an actual feeling of I saw myself as if I were a camera right. looking. I, I don't have a sense of looking at myself when I'm not in my own body, which is ironic or sitting next to myself. Nothing that that feels more, um, again, like describable and understandable mm -hmm. because you're sort of comparing it to watching a movie or something. The experience for me is actually more like uh, I realized when this movie came out that the experience for me is more like probably what being John Malkovich felt like, I see. where you go, you're inside a tunnel and you're sort of back in there somewhere looking out through the eyes of this sort of meat puppet where... Uh -huh. The conversation is so existential. It's this very sort of like, what, why, like, what are arms? What are hands? Why do I know how to move them? What is the meaning of this? What happens if I'm still? What's my body doing? Is it dead? Is it alive? Why do I like what I like? So it's like you have shitty seats to your life. Yeah. Yeah. I have shitty You're seats. You're in the to my balcony. Life. Yeah. Somebody's pulling the strings, but, you know, it's too easy to feel like it's happening through someone else or something okay. else. It's just a feeling of, depersonalization it's a feeling of this sort of abstraction of a body and of a soul of a mind of and you and again that's i think describing it that way for me does kind of tie into the idea of like a bad trip right because that mm -hmm. same sort of stuff that i'm describing is what people say when they're like i'm just too high man i'm too high so it has to be some part of the brain and the counselor that i met when i was describing it um she was describing symptoms back to me after I had had all of them for about a year, maybe a little less than that. Um, but no one had understood what I was saying. And so mm. she, when she was able to say stuff like, does it almost feel sometimes like you have a, like a, like a fever, like it's a fever, you're sort of fighting through the fog of a fever to have a normal conversation and stuff. And I was like, yes, yes. Um, 
so she had it when she was younger and so she she recognized it but it is fairly rare so i got really really lucky that i happened to be connected with somebody who just happened to have gone through that when she was that age um but uh and then and then as i got older there would be elements of that but then sometimes i would just have more conventional panic attacks which at the time i was having all these and people were saying when i was 18 or 19 people were saying oh that's probably a panic attack i was like there's no way this is a panic attack this can last like 24 48 hours Mm. i'm not in a blind panic i can be sitting in a car looking out the window aware that i'm looking out the window but also not feeling present not feeling like I'm really there on some right. fundamental level. And, and, and so there was a lot of like things that I needed to do to feel grounded in my body. And even just talking about it now, I can, I can feel all of that. Like I could fully incite an episode right now. If, a panic attack? Or, or whatever feeling... this out of body experience is. Wow. If I, I mean, it's, it's talking about it is, Are is there triggers? you know. Mm, I mean, ta- I would say that actually talking about it is a yeah. trigger. But I kind of pushed past that because now i've 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 become old enough and i've also stopped I, it, there was a point at which it felt like it was in control that was the it would just ha- you know that if that thing's going to happen to me it's going to happen to me like it was something that you know just happened to me rather than something that i could participate in and have right. a choice about right. um but even right now like talking about it if i talk about what that feels like i start to feel that way wow like right now i sort of feel like oh yeah i'm kind of like i'm saying i know i'm saying all these words but my brain is so active that there's a part of me that's like, yeah, 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 you're saying words, tongue, teeth, tongue, teeth, tongue, teeth. This is weird. This is what your voice sounds like. This wow. is what your voice sounds like. Yeah. Like, look, I'm holding on to the table because there's some part of me that starts to feel like, oh, I just need to ground myself. So I would spend a lot of time with my hands up here because I didn't like the feeling of my hands. Uh, so she's I, putting I her, say, her hands on her arms. I would arms. say that my hands dangling down at my sides, my arms dangling down, down at my sides, I... I had this feeling like they were just going to drizzle down to the ground, like they sort of lost. I, I I couldn't tell where my arms ended and the rest of the world began, wow. sort of in a way. That's and so, so I would hold my, used. I would always hold my arms, just hold my arms, like fold my arms or be holding my arms. And then I also had this thing where I would stand, not flat foot. If I stood a little bit on my uh, on the sides of my yeah on the edges of my feet, so I was slightly off balance, that would help me because I had to do things that would keep me in my body. And were any of these recommended by your therapist? No. And by the way, that thing it was you all said just about like protection of self, the thing you said about your arms dripping off, is so going to be used in the opening montage of uh, next year's <laughs> shows. <laughs> I think I said drizzling. <laughs> Into well, because you're a foodie, honey. Of course, yeah. you have to say drizzle. <laughs> like a balsamic, I would say drizzling at the pace and consistency of a nice balsamic. <laughs> so, when your therapist uh, said, "I think this is what you might have," um, were there any tools that you weren't just kind of instinctively doing already yeah. that she gave you to do? Um, that's a good question. And if it was a ten out of ten. Back then, what is it now? Yeah, if it flares up, that, if it was ten out of ten, I would say I can, I can, I would say I can more or less stave it off at like a five or a six. Mm. But what I was saying before was, um, 
that they, that I did have some very conventional panic attacks after that. Like I did have, I sort of had less of the out of body experience. Um, once I was in my twenties, it manifested a little bit more in a conventional way where I would suddenly be, you know, short of breath and my heart would be pounding. And I even remember thinking at the time, like, Oh, well, I know what this is. Cause this is the thing people have been telling me I have this whole time. So at least I know that I'm not crazy because this is just a boring old panic attack. Like <laughs> everybody with anxiety has these. And there was something comforting about that because for that first period of time, I just felt like, you know, again, Diane, having that counselor understand it made a huge difference. And then they did put me on Prozac, which at the time was sort of, there were like antipsychotics, anti-anxiety and Prozac. Um, And the Prozac definitely absolutely removed. It it definitely removed that all of the conversations that were possible while I was just being a person. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also... It it also triggered my ADD to the point where I, like, dropped out of school and didn't care and was just sort of, you know, it really activated the sort of, like, what what am I going to do next? What was I just saying? Oh, I don't know. I don't – you know what I mean? It was just yeah. very sort of, like, hyper. Um, and so I didn't stay on that. And then after that – and then, like – and then I found out very quickly when it came back, um, so I sort of so, – so, so, yeah, I kind of got a handle on it when I was 19 or so. Mm. It would say it came back around 21, 22, and I tried Prozac again, and it didn't work. And then they tried to give me Valium. Like, well, if you feel like you're having these freakouts, and that's when I found out that Valium does not work for me. It makes me more hyper. Mm. Um, sort of like just the sort of feeling of like taking cold medicine too much or right. something. Feeling this sort of, again, this sort of out of body, like I'm tired, but I'm wired. Yeah. Um, and so for a long time, I just had to, you know, it was just a matter of having to cope with it. Um, but also feeling like once you have things like that and you come out on the other side of them, you know, I was just afraid that, and I still have a fear of just going crazy. I have a fear of a psychotic break where, yeah. you know, I'm doing everything right, but somehow something happens. And I think it is like there's some sort of latent fear that like that could happen on an amusement park ride or, you know what I mean? There are things I avoid because I think somewhere, even if I'm not articulating it to myself at the time, there's this fear that I'm just going to snap and lose touch with reality and be a person who is beyond help, you know, and who is going to be. Well, that's a pretty good, that's that a pretty uh, yeah. meaty fear. Absolutely. Um yeah, so I don't I don't know that that's something that I walk around with me. I mean, I think also as I've gotten older, um, that fear has probably just been replaced by like regular old cancer. Just stuff, just stuff, <laughs> sweet, stuff sweet that cancer. yeah, stuff that you. I try to put a positive spin on it by thinking like, um, I, I I I that I love my life and I I don't want it to be over. And so I think because. Um, I've been in a really good place for the last couple of years, even though I've been going through stuff with my family and my family self, uh, which I think has is in large part why now, you know, I feel like, oh, it's possible. Right, 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 right. Yes. All of those things that there are so many things that we all have to, I think, in, in, in many ways, we just have to keep at a distance and go that happens to other people, mm-hmm. not because that's true, but because. Otherwise, you would just spend your whole life waiting for whatever right. hammer was going to fall, and that's no way to live. But then one of them does fall, 
and you do experience it. And then there's that period of time where I think you experience this if then, oh, oh, if this, then what else? Right. And so that's sort of, I think, where I went. And also that was mixed with this idea of, you know, I'm so lucky and I have such a great life. Uh, Why wouldn't this be torn away from me in some terrible way? Like, so, so this fear of finding out that I was terminally ill you know, kind of would rise back up. It's like, oh, if there's nothing else for you to worry about, then you can always fall back. If, you're, if your brain is trying to keep you from being happy, you can always fall back on, on like that. everything seems too good. Right. When are they going to find that I have, that I'm just full of tumors? Yes. And I'm going to find out I have six months. And then the conversation of like, how am I going to get through those six months and actually enjoy those six months rather than just live in terror you know, of right. the end. I, so I was at a, <clears throat> one of my support group meetings the other night, and this guy was celebrating like 30 years of sobriety and was giving this just amazing share about what he'd learned and what his life was like now. And he got about 30 seconds into it, and I spent the next two minutes trying to figure out how I'm going to survive financially when the brain tumor is revealed, which I am positive I have because, you know, I, yeah. two days in a row I had difficulty uh-huh. putting a sentence together. It's, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And again, it's those – wouldn't it be crazy if you, your brain was so simple that all you had the capacity to do was just hear him speak and that's mm-hmm. what your brain could process at that moment rather than – the ability to listen to him and also have that conversation and then probably also have a separate conversation where you're chiding yourself about the tumor conversation yes. that you're having when you should be just listening and being present in the moment for this guy's conversation. Yeah. And then there's like a fourth conversation that's like, you know, what am I going to eat for lunch? <laughs> just a real simple And maybe one. a fifth going, you've eaten. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh Let's do some loves. Okay. Um, I love, I've, I think I've done this one before, but Gracie just reminded me of it. When a dog is so excited that it jumps unnecessarily high while it's running. Because <laughs> it just has so much joy yeah. that it, it can't not express it. Yeah. I, uh, I, well, I'm going through major puppy love right now, which I've never had a puppy before. And... um all of the things that made me think I didn't want to have a puppy. I'm sure this is also child rearing for many people. I just have not done that. Uh, but I also about puppies was like, that's just going to be too much work. Like things are, I don't, I don't need to add anything to my life. Why would I add the work part of that? Um, but he is so funny. I mean, just funny, like just all of, I mean, dogs are so funny anyway, but puppies are just so hilarious his relationship to the world certainly his relationship to toys like all of the things that he does with you know it's all the cliches i mean anybody who has a dog i didn't have i've had two dogs for years and years and years neither one of them liked toys particularly they both sort of liked a ball occasionally and Mm -hmm. didn't do but you know jasper has a basket full of toys and watching him systematically take out each toy and then I will put them away and then he will look at me like, what are you doing? And will follow me and immediately bring the toy back out and then just abandon it. But it needed to come back. But like, don't don't put my toys away. OK. Yeah. Um, and just like behaviors like that that are just. You see their little so brains funny. working. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's kind of simple view Absolutely. Of, the, of the world. Oh, I wonder great. sometimes if they look at us and say, God, they're so filled with worry. Yeah. They're so why simple. They, why is it so complicated yes. for them? Yeah. If only they just knew how to be in the present moment. Yeah. Ah, poop. Yep. Yeah. Um, I love the sound of a guitar when it has brand new strings on it and it's perfectly in tune and and you strum it and it just sounds, uh, God, I hate to use this word, but it, it shimmers. Mm, yeah, it that's just, a, that is a very, that's a shimmery sound for yes. sure. And the, you can hear all the, uh, the overtones of, of the notes. So it just sounds so full and, and rich. Yeah. I love that sound. That's a beautiful sound. It makes me every, and now I've managed to make that into a negative for me, which is why don't I ever play the guitar anymore? You see how I, <laughs> Yeah, that is nice. I can't wait to go home and look at my guitar and go, that would be, that, yes. that's a nice sound. You're a shame ninja. I'm a shame ninja. I gotcha, <laughs> Janet. Uh, I had an experience a couple of weeks ago, um, which was seeing a, a, a singer-songwriter named Jose Gonzalez uh, live. He is a Swedish by way of Portugal, I think. I feel bad that I could be wrong about that. I'm not sure. He's his he he's from Sweden, but I mean, obviously Jose Gonzalez is not a Swedish name, and I can't remember where the other part of where he's from, and that feels wrong. But um, please belabor this more with unnecessary yeah, details. Listen, let me qual- qualify it a little bit more. So, really, you know what? I don't even deserve to tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> let me go back to the cardamom joke. That's more my speed. It has uh, been so long <laughs> since I mocked you. It feels so good. You have not let it's, up since I got here. It is just a bicycle that relentless. really never left me. It's you're riding smooth. Smooth. Speaking of, I do love riding a bicycle right after you've put air in the tires and like cleaned the chain and stuff. That is nice. That's a shimmer right there. That's yes. a shimmer because that those moments. It's almost like when you get your ears cleaned or you get your contact lenses updated. You feel like you have a superpower. It's very very simple minor upgrade. Mm-hmm. But you, when I get on that bike after I've been riding with like tires that were too low. I suddenly feel like I'm incredibly powerful. Like, oh, yes. where is this strength and might and speed coming from? I'm wonderful. Uh, so I, I very much enjoyed that. Jose Gonzalez is a wonderful, wonderful singer-songwriter. A lot of kind of existential songwriting happening. Um, he, a lot of it is very basic, just guitar, acoustic mm-hmm. guitar, maybe some drums. Um, but he is on tour right now and has been for quite some time with uh, a, an orchestra called String Theory. And he he came through Los Angeles and played a couple shows. And uh, it was so beautiful um, just having – and the difference, I just knew it's, – it's funny because when we got into the car afterwards, I was a complete mess because I had been crying so much. And uh, in a public place, which you just have to lean into when it's a concert. Um, but I, I said, I know, I, I, I know the second I, because he released a live album when he was in Europe of this exact show, and I hadn't listened to it purposefully because I knew I wanted to hear the live version first. And and I said, I know when I listen to it, it's going to sound so flat and cut off from the experience of mm-hmm. all of these interest, instruments are washing over you and and how visceral an experience it is to see it live. But I had list, I've listened. To to Jose Gonzalez for so many years now and it's the kind and and he is one of those maybe like the Beatles for you where 
it doesn't matter what I'm doing. It's always appropriate for me to mm-hmm. listen to his music. And that's not true of all bands for me. There's, you know, but he's somebody that I could fall asleep to if I were having trouble sleeping. I can be out riding my bike and feel like he's kind of giving this texture to my experience of seeing the world through my bike. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or, you know, when I'm sad, whatever, traveling, uh, and so, and that to me is him, the definition of an artist when the, they can the breadth of emotions absolutely. That, they, that they can they bring can to fold it. in and enhance so many elements yes. of your own experiences. So, having had so many experiences blending all together of having listened to his music at all these you know different ages, not to say that it's been forty years, but you know even just ten to fifteen years of listening mm-hmm. to someone and having that be profound for you. Uh, and then having this just wave of just beautiful music. And that's typically, I get emotional when live music is being played anyway, because it gives me, I immediately am filled, not by choice, with this tremendous sense of hope. Like, mm-hmm. oh, if human beings, if they can make this sound, that we can't be all bad. Like, if we yes. need this, if we need this at all, then then I can't be miserable. I can't want to leave this earth because this is us we made this no other part of nature really made this you know we had to conceive of it and make it and uh, so that happens and then when it's something that i love on top of that i just was awash in almost like having my life flash before my eyes mm. where in a good way i was just being flooded with these memories of like san francisco and canada and my parents and you know it, it, everything was just kind of coming together and 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 it felt like it all existed at the same time and i'm a very big fan of the block universe theory anyway this idea that there is no you know that somehow everything is just sort of happening at once whether or not we can conceive of that um and you were so too those smart moments, for this podcast <laughs> This is this is going to be shelved. <laughs> Those moments. Just so I get this out. Those moments where I feel like I'm simultaneously connecting to so many other versions of myself, mm-hmm. both happy and sad, was so overwhelming existentially in a good way that I kind of felt like I was leaving my body. And I, and I realized I wasn't breathing. I was just holding my breath, having this experience wow. of seeing this music. And... Um, and it kind of started to scare me because it started to feel like an out an out of body experience and i really had to i really had a conversation with myself where i was like this is the upside of that so mm-hmm. lean into it let your i was like this is what people with cancer take mushrooms to feel mm-hmm. you are not your own little tiny creature who's connected. disconnected from everything else. You have to allow that bleed to happen. And if you can't feel anymore where your body ends and this music begins, that's a gift. And don't let it, you know, don't let it make you feel scared. It's don't just, fight the drizzle. Don't fight the drizzle. Let it drizz. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I really did. And it was a real exercise in acknowledging that you know this profound experience i was having felt almost like the rapture i mean it felt rapturous in that kind of scary way where you're like Mm -hmm. this is is this maybe too much for me to handle um and and then you know and then he and then i felt like he was i really felt like they thoughtfully came up with a playlist such that they kind of took us there and then they sort of backed off of that for the second half of the show and 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 it was more just like great music but they kind of backed off. i felt like they took care of the audience hmm. you know because i was not the only person who was feeling that you know when you can hear people in quiet moments rather than being like i love you jose 
which there were still were a couple, which is very embarrassing uh, for me as a human So Edith being. Bunker was there? <laughs> Edith Bunker was there. She looked great, by Archie the way. Archie did not care for the Archie Hispanic on stage. Archie was not a fan. Uh there there were you would hear these like these very human sounds of like oh like these really? just sort of like mm, mm. like people were very overwhelmed by it and it wasn't just me i'm sure i was the most overwhelmed but uh to feel kind of like we were taken back to the ground and then sort of sent on our way with love it, 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 i mean it's mm-hmm. the most profound experience i've ever had seeing live music wow. bar none i recommend it to anyone and i would say that it is so good that I don't know that it even has to be someone you've even heard before. I, I think I think it would work on anyone. I think you will get some sense of that from this show, even if you've never heard him before and you don't care about acoustic guitar. I love corn. <laughs> Give me another one. Yeah, <laughs> buddy, I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to be able to top that. Uh, <laughs> I love I, corn, too, yes. in all its forms, really. I, I love the moment at the end of my support group meeting, um, especially my my Thursday night one, um, which is a, it's an all-men's meeting, and we form a big circle, and we put our arms uh, on each other's shoulders and we take it out with a prayer, which I'm not a big fan of uh, some prayers, especially kind of the old-timey religious ones. So instead of the words, I kind of focus on just the love and the connection and the energy. And I, and I love that feeling of reminding myself that I don't go through the world alone. This is my support network. This is where my strength is. And there isn't anything that I can't handle in life if i am willing to connect to this group and not to say i won't you know deal with pain or setbacks or you know things that are difficult but i can always if not get help from this group find comfort in not feeling alone yeah and that the power of the of the group with a shared purpose and a shared experience yeah i love fog Do you enjoy uh, Velvet Fog, Mel Torme? Uh, you know, the Velvet Fog, I, I have fond memories of because he would make these appearances on Night Court. Um, and so I knew if Harry Anderson liked Mel Torme, I probably had to like Mel Torme as well because I, I did love Harry Anderson, uh, specifically in his judge's robe. But um, but no, I think just regular plain old fog. You do like fog. Love it. Really? Yeah. I love that feeling when you're going to the beach and that wave of the smell of the ocean hits you with the with the windows down. And even though you've smelled it many times before, there's still details to it that you forgot and you can't quite put your finger on it until you're there again. I love the smell. There's hiking in Griffith Park, especially if it's been moist, if there's been Mm -hmm. fog, which in that particular park is so fun because that fog really smothers the city so quickly that you can no longer see 
that it exists at all, and it smothers, smothers the sound as well. Mm-hmm. So you can really feel removed, even though you're in this park that's 360 degrees surrounded by Metropolis, city, yeah. Metrop- major metropolis and multiple cities. Yes. Uh, that there's a smell that I would smell when I was hiking, and I couldn't ever identify what it was, um, but it always smelled like maple syrup to me. It was and, men fucking in the bushes. And it was just men fucking in the bushes. It was just love. It was just sweet gay love. I wouldn't be surprised if that had a maple syrup element to it. Uh, but then I found out that it's called – It's a that it's a naturally occurring uh, flora called California Everlasting, which is kind of a great really? – Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great name. Um and it and it smells fantastic. And so I took some home one time, and then I realized I think I might be allergic to it when I have it <laughs> in close quarters. <laughs> and then your friend in San Francisco fell to her death. <laughs> yes! That is why. That is why. Yeah. Uh, I love the feeling when you're reading a book, and you're about five pages into it, and you know you're just going to f- love the rest of it. And or or a movie, and you're like, oh, I have so much of this left. Yeah, it's just what a beautiful escape. This yeah. is what a great experience this is going to be. Yeah, I felt that way um, for a long time with a series of books by uh, an author named Louise Penny, who created this um, imaginary tiny town in French. Quebec in in Quebec, mm. but it's on the other side of it's sort of like the the state's border would be Vermont, mm-hmm. um, but it's an English speaking town nestled inside of of French Canada called Three Pines, and it is a tiny town full of characters like in the most rudimentary wonderful storybook sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you become very familiar with like the bakery and the B and B and the and the and the angry old lady poet who lives there um and uh and those those books were like i mean she's very prolific she just keeps churning them out Mm -hmm. and so um it is a little bit like when (laughs) when she first drops a name of one of the characters that you love it's like being at a concert where you could just sort of imagine a group of people being like yeah i love this song but really it's just the name Jean-Guy Beauvoir. <laughs> By the way, did I mention that they're murder mysteries? Yes. They're gentle Canadian mysteries. I hate you and I love you. Gentle Canadian mysteries about Inspector Gamache. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Highly recommend. Uh, I love that feeling. And and there's really only one specific uh, improv show that I get this at. Uh, you know who Dave and TJ are, right? Oh, TJ. Yes. I call him TJ, TJ and Dave. Yeah. Uh, Dave Pasquese and TJ Jagodowski, who uh, do the Dave and TJ show. And they, this is for the listeners, because obviously you know this. Again, I know them as TJ and Dave. They do a uh, long form improv. They don't go for the quick or easy laughs. They build characters. They they play with it as much as you possibly can, and it's improv at the highest, highest level. And they will take these turns in the story, and it's 40, 45 minutes to an hour, and the audience tends to be kind of uh, improv aficionados. And I love a moment in when they're performing where one of them will come up with something 
that you know is going to set everything in a whole new direction is just kind of a gold mine of improv stuff to draw from and you hear the audience react with the way like it's christmas like they've just been given something that is like that book i was talking about yeah. where the next half hour is can't go- i can't to wait to see how these guys goes. explore this um there was a moment where and and uh, for for the listener, they the two of them go out on stage, blank stage, and they are silent for about five seconds until one of them will just say something and the other will react, and then they just keep going for forty five minutes. And there was a show where, and so obviously no two shows are ever the same. And they were doing a show where uh, the whole thing started off. Uh, they're sitting there standing there on stage, you know, five, ten seconds pass, and uh, TJ uh, reaches over and just kind of puts his hand on Dave's shoulder, and it becomes this thing about him being fitted for a tuxedo. And then about 20 minutes into it, uh, TJ says to to uh, Dave, well, it's not very often someone gets a Nobel Prize. And the audience just <laughs> roared like, now this whole thing is about Dave yeah. winning a, a Nobel Prize. And yeah. I just love those moments when artists just abandon any self-consciousness. And it's almost like the universe is playing something through them, like just this beautiful piece of, of, of art and being there to witness it and not only witness it, but the fact that it will never be done again. And only that group of people that were there that night. Um, and I've talked to, to, to Dave about it and he says, you know, it, it, my job is to just get out of the way and just kind of let it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I love doing improv for that, and I'm not I'm not in the same universe as TJ and Dave, but I but I love how present uh, it makes you. I mean, if you let it, if you let it do its job and you do your job as a part of it, uh, it's so meditative. It for really me is because there's just it's the same as doing my podcast. There's just not there are certain things that I do where I find that for whatever reason, all of the other conversations in my head are quieted and. It's I'm not a person who has been able to to successfully sit very just completely quietly or have a mantra or really exercise mm-hmm. forms of guided meditation in in that conventional sense for me uh, because of my thing that mm-hmm. I had like that's not necessary. And that was one of the things that my therapist did help me with was like, you don't have to you don't have to to try to be still in your body and. And that's your way of overcoming anxiety. Mm-hmm. It can be through physical activity. It can be through it can you you can find where you are meditative in ways that don't necessarily mean the same thing to yes. someone else. And so I think that's something that's been a real gift for me is is understanding that like hitting a tennis ball mm-hmm. can be that for me, or mm-hmm. you know being outside or riding a bike or performing. I I get it from hitting a tennis pro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just with a racket to the back of the head. I understand. And then they slump over, and their Arnold Palmer spills on the yeah. court. Yeah, this when the just after the slump happens, and you and you, it's so like you're cracking open a new book. Yes. In the first five minutes, you're like, I can't wait to see how I've debilitated the rest of this man's life. I just have it stretching out in front of me. I'm just going to get to see what havoc I've wreaked. And then I put my footprint on his two short shorts. <laughs> yep. 
Um, JV, I know you got to get out of here. I love you. It's it's so good to reconnect with you. Uh, people can check out your podcast. It's a great podcast, and you've had some really, really cool guests on there. It's called uh, the JV Club. Um, they can follow you on Twitter at? Just at Janet Varney on Instagram. I'm the JV Club. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, those – and then Voyage to the Stars is this other podcast that I've been doing that I've been loving the hell out of that I'm on with Felicia Day and Colton Dunn and uh, Steve Berg, and they are all very fine improvisers, and it's an improvised space adventure. And that is a perfect example of how constantly I'm surprised by other people's brains and how tickled I am by that. Love you. Love you, buddy. So fun talking to her. I laugh so much when we get together. Uh, before we get to our uh, survey portion of the show, I uh, want to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by Veridesk, the world's leading standing desk solution, helping professionals maintain a healthy, active lifestyle in the office or at home. Veridesk converts any desk into a standing desk, and it's designed with durable, best-in-class materials that fit in any environment or workspace. With Veridesk, you can easily go from sitting to standing, increasing your productivity, focus, and collaboration. Veridesk comes with a 30-day risk-free guarantee, and there's no assembly required. That's a huge part, no assembly required. They also cover shipping both ways, so if you don't love it, they'll pick it up. Veridesk is trusted by 98% of Fortune 500 companies and has over 14,000 five-star reviews from professionals all over the world. Stay focused on what matters with Veridesk. To learn more about Veridesk Standing Desk Solutions, visit veridesk.com slash work elevated. That's V-A-R-I-D-E-S-K dot com slash work elevated. Maximize your productivity at veridesk.com slash work elevated. Today's episode is also sponsored by HoneyBook. If you run a creative business, you know how to make your clients look good. But if you're struggling with tedious administrative tasks, let HoneyBook do the work and make you look good. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communication bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. If you're a creative freelancer or small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services you already use like QuickBooks, Google Suite, MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds to thousands of hours a year. It's your business, just better, with HoneyBook. So right now, HoneyBook is offering you guys 50 percent off your first year with promo code mental payment is flexible and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually go to honeybook.com and use promo code mental for 50 percent off your first year get paid faster and work smarter with honeybook.com promo code mental let's get to some surveys this is a shame and secret survey, and it was filled out by a woman who calls herself On the Path. She's straight in her 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, I would uh, question that, or maybe I'm thinking of another survey. Um, continuing. Uh, yes, yes. No, this is a survey I'm thinking of. No, I would not call that a stable and safe environment. 
Uh, she's never been sexually abused, uh, but she has been emotionally abused. Uh, emotional neglect. I didn't even know it until I found myself in therapy with a certified sex addiction therapist because of my husband's sex addiction. My group members would talk about emotional neglect in their childhoods, and I always thought I had loving, supportive parents. They are good people. I'm not like these ladies. But then I realized while my parents were always there, they were completely absent emotionally. My therapist asked me one time how emotional situations were handled in my house, and I realized they weren't. Emotions were just known to be unacceptable, so no one ever displayed or, as consequence, felt them. Yeah, that's a big deal. I think sometimes that can be even more of a mindfuck than overt abuse or the person being physically absent. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about being of being one of my husband's affair partners. That is starting to fade with recovery, but at the beginning, it was pretty big. Darkest secrets. My parents refused to acknowledge or let me ever question or explore my biological father. They made me feel shame and guilt if I inquired about him, saying I was disrespecting my dad who adopted me. Wow, your parents sound really, really shut down and controlling. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Simply being wanted. I feel completely uncomfortable talking about sex. What, if anything, do you wish for that I hadn't married a sex addict? Have you shared these things with others? Yes, a lot. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel okay about it. Thank you for sharing that. You know, a lot of times the the spouse or the partner of the addict, um, their, oh, I hate the word journey, but their their path can be every bit as difficult and confusing as that of the, the addict trying to get better because, you know, got to remember that person chose the addict and that person stayed with the addict. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there's a dynamic there that, that needs to be addressed. Why we choose people, you know, who are that way. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself D, and she writes, I've struggled with anxiety and depression most of my life. As a younger teenager, I began seeing a doctor and continued with him through my mid-30s. This man knew me. He knew my family and was an amazing doctor. When I turned 35, my dog, my grandma, and my dad all died that year. The depression and anxiety were at an all-time high, and I began experiencing what I now know were panic attacks. One day, I ended up in my doctor's office convinced I was dying. My heart was pounding. I was sweating and crying, and I couldn't breathe. My doctor came in and saw the state I was in and looked at me with concern, sympathy, and a bit of sadness. Having been a victim of abuse at a young age, my initial reaction to my emotions was always that I was overreacting and that it wasn't really a big deal. I felt terrible that I was wasting his time with this emotional outburst and tried to leave. He put his hand on my back and said, It'll be okay, kiddo. It's a panic attack. We can fix this. At that moment, I felt such relief. I was validated. This was a real thing. I'd never felt such comfort before in my life. I'm still in therapy regularly and taking meds with the attacks under control. I'll never forget how such an awful moment turned into relief and validation. That is beautiful. Man, when I hear a story about a doctor who sees the human being 
underneath the issue or condition, it, it just makes me so happy because it just makes me happy. I suppose because when I was a kid, I encountered some really fucking awful doctors that scarred me, <laughs> literally and figuratively. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, let me see what I can do for you. She identifies as pansexual. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was five or six, I was sleeping over at my friend's house, and we found a book that had pictures of sex positions. We innocently assumed some of the positions and laughed, but I remember feeling a little tingle down there and wasn't sure what to do about it. All of a sudden, my friend's dad walks in and takes the book. I remember him smirking and looking at me. He asked me if I saw anything that looked like fun in there. Ugh. When I said yes, he said, well, don't tell your parents because they won't let you come back over here. I never told. This was the beginning of my sexual exploration and addiction. My parents were stupidly religious, so yeah, I never talked to anyone about it. She's also been emotionally abused. Uh, just always told what I was doing could be done better by my mother. My looks, my grades, my attitude, my life goals, nothing was ever good enough. She was so critical and said we should strive to be perfect children of God. Boy, that sentence makes me sick. Positive experiences. Not bad all the time, I guess. Well, that's that's a pretty low bar. Uh, I would say then I don't see, you know, just because it wasn't bad all the time uh, doesn't doesn't uh, mean those experiences were positive just because they weren't awful. Uh, darkest thoughts. I sometimes fantasize about child pornography. It arouses me and disturbs me at the same time. Darkest Secrets. On my 33rd birthday, I hooked up with a guy from a bar I frequent. It was fun and exciting, and we would hook up randomly throughout the year. I went sex crazy and gave in to my addiction. I slept with 13 men that year. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being tied up and completely taken advantage of. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Why did you even have me? Wow, that is a, that is a powerful powerful sentence and feeling. What, if anything, do you wish for to have a clear mind? Have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I need a drink and some sex. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I wish you could feel for a moment how horrible I feel around you. Any comments to make the podcast better? You make me comfortable, never change. If you knew me, you'd know how big of a compliment that is. Well, I don't even have to know you to feel like that is a big compliment. So thank you for that. And um, I hope you're getting the, the help that you deserve because what you experienced uh, is is really awful. And it sounds like Instead of sex being a, a thing to connect you to other people, it's a thing for you to take you out of the uncomfortable feelings that you have. And, you know, that's that can be really problematic as it sounds like that's what's happening in your life. Sex isn't a bad thing. It's it's how we use it that 
determines whether or not it's healthy. You know, put our immorality uh, or morality aside. It's about, are we being kind to ourselves? Are we being kind to others in the way that we connect sexually? This is an awful moment filled out by a, a guy who calls himself Scott No Mates. I think we've read a survey from him before. Uh, he sounds like he's either Irish or uh, Scottish. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess uh, Irish. He writes, "I'm glad you're called Paul. Paul. Paul is a good, solid biblical name. Some of my favorite humans on the planet are called Paul." I'm not sure how we'd cope if your introduction was, this is the mental illness happy hour, and I'm Scotty Gilmartin. Scotty Gilmartin. He sounds like the intellectually challenged guy who dies early in every small town horror film. Now, I think your parents, for all their faults and failings, did a fine job naming you Paul. Could have been a lot worse. I remember I had a teacher in college who paused one time in the middle, in the middle of speaking and said, and his his name was Sigmund, and he said, kids, if you have kids, for the love of God, don't ever name them Sigmund. <laughs> he just continued. Uh, my friend Paul was 70 when I met him. I was in my 30s. Both of my grandparents died, and, and I'm editing some of this out just, uh, just for length. And both of my grandfathers died when I was a wee bairn, And Paul, while small in stature, snugly filled that granddad-sized hole in my heart. He used to be a Christian brother in the Marist tradition. That's hardcore Catholic. He was celibate from the ages of 18 to 43. He'd been born again nearly 30 years before we met and now had a wife, two teenage kids, and wore rainbow sashes to church services. He told us that his relationship with God had also been reborn after he left the brotherhood. He wrote a lot of letters and had impassioned debates with bishops and archbishops agitating for change within the church. Nothing changed. At one group meeting, he'd been driven to spitting rage by another patronizing letter he'd received received from the church hierarchy. He got so angry that he ran out of words and sat there for a full minute breathing through his teeth. Someone laid a reassuring hand on his shoulder. He straightened in his chair and said, Fuck those fucking fuckers. Amen, brother. Paul died a couple of years back, as old blokes tend to do. His gentle wisdom, his fierceness in the face of ignorance, and his love for nature, life, and all humanity are with me every day. He's with me every day. As I gradually turn into an old cunt myself... I realize I'm reading more and more from his playbook, and I'm a better man for it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that. You painted such a picture. And I fucking love people who are working within an organization and doing the right thing, not staying silent when they see fucked up shit going on around them, despite that making them unpopular or, you know, quote, problematic. Those are, those are heroes to me. Or, you know, and then leaving it if it's clear that they're wasting their time. But the fact that they tried, they spoke their mind, they spoke their truth. I love that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself pushing through. She 
Hold on. She identifies as bisexual, asexual. Uh, I chose one partner to have sex with just to not be a virgin. Uh, she's in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My mother used to ask if my father had touched me, especially when I started to get pubic hair and she could see it through my underwear. She wore the minimum amount of clothes around the house. My father was never present in my life, though he lived in the house until he died when I was in high school. She made me feel very aware and protect- protective of my body. I craved touch, but felt so wrong when I got it, cuddling with her. By the time I was in middle school, I started planning on how to block doors so that no one could come in. That sounds like classic, classic covert incest. If you haven't read the book Silently Seduced by Kenneth Adams, I highly, highly recommend it. And if you have any questions uh, about this, I know some good places for support um, around issues like this not feeling like your body is your own feeling creeped out by a parent's touch um she's also been physically and emotionally abused i never felt a positive emotional connection with my parents or my siblings that was me though i kept pulling back and inward i built so many walls that now i barely have room to turn around i lost my place I won't be able to get out of this, but at least I'm, quote, safe, right? When my dad died, I was still in high school, and the rest of the kids had, quote, escaped. My mom only had me to latch onto, and I became the replacement. God, I hate slash hated her so much more than I love her. I only was released from that hold when she died. I was too weak to break off the connection before. I still wanted to be loved, but I just felt used, and I still wasn't the favorite that wasn't even going to going near the mess that was her except for mo- except for money any positive experiences with the abusers i think that i was happy until i was about 4 well you had 3 good years there's probably somebody that would say that well be grateful you had that nice run I don't know what happened then. I have a lot of blank spaces in my memory. But for those early years, my mother had to be a major part of the happy, right? Question mark. Darkest thoughts. I would never do this and not just because I have never orgasmed. Uh, I don't want to have sex in the real world with my body and with another human being. But I get aroused thinking about kids getting abused. Gender of either the person uh, doesn't matter. I think she meant gender of either person doesn't matter. Neither has a face. I never reach orgasm. I think that the main theme is that both sides get aroused, but the child has no power. I don't know if this is from a past that I have blocked or if I am just a sick fuck. Could be the fact that I should kill myself. You are not a sick fuck. You are not a sick fuck. Uh, I hope you have heard the other surveys that, that I've read. Our brain plays crazy crazy things for us that we have no control over we have no control over what turns us on what we do have control over is what we what we do with it and you should not kill yourself you should not kill yourself i know that sounds like a very simple thing but i just uh it breaks my heart when i see people hating themselves for what turns them on as if they have any control over 
what turns them on. Darkest Secrets. I tricked my mother into giving me med control when she had dementia. I forced her into a nursing home. Several. She kept getting kicked out until she died. I never felt freer until she died. I am still... uh, I I think what she meant was I never felt freer uh, after she died. I'm still so glad that she is dead because I would never have had the energy or will to get help for myself otherwise. That still took years to get to. Binging since third grade, squirreling the food to my room, then eating to the point of pain and still wanting to eat more. Shame, fat ass, stupid bitch. Why the fuck am I doing this to myself? Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Domination, where one partner has no power. Sometimes both get to be aroused, but nobody gets a face. The one without power is usually much younger than the dominator. Uh sometimes a child. It is always tinged with wrongness, but a harsh neediness slash rushedness. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? And this is in caps. I don't want to be alone. Look at me. Touch me. See me. Hear me. If you could boil this podcast down to a few words, that would be it. That would be it. That's one of the most human things that I have ever read. One of the most direct, vulnerable things that I've ever, ever read. And that is a healthy, right-sized need to have. Thank you for that survey. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Jan Hen. And she writes, I've struggled with panic disorder in relationships my whole life. I do this thing where I tell my partner that they can share anything with me because I can handle it. Then they do, and then I go into complete panic mode. If it's not a lash out of anger, then it's a secret lock myself in the bathroom and cry kind of episode. Had one of these recently on my boyfriend. It was an angry one. I unleashed a behavior that he'd never seen from me in the seven months that we'd been dating. I remember waking up the next morning feeling full of guilt, regret, and sadness. I knew he had every right to end things with me. It's what I expected. It's what has happened in previous times. I've known for years that I needed help. I refused to seek it. This awfulsome moment brought me to the help I should have sought years ago. Kudos to you for having a moment of clarity and acting on it in the right direction. You know, there's a there's a phrase in recovery, the gift of desperation. And for me, that's what I had to be desperate to ask for help 15 years ago. Actually, even going back 30 years ago when I first started going to therapy. I had I have to get in so much pain and feel so desperate sometimes to open up about things. And the other thing that that you know I think is important here is there's a gift sometimes in not getting your way because it forces us to look at things that we wouldn't look at if we were getting our way. You know, really profound growth 
more often than not, comes from pain, loss, desperation, creme brulee. I don't know why I threw that one in there. Because it's a dangerous dessert. It's the dessert of the devil. I don't know if you know that, but creme brulee is the devil's jism. Did you just say that, Paul? Yes, I did. Why? Because it's my podcast. And if people don't enjoy it, they can turn it off. Yeah, but then you might lose all the listeners and you'll be alone. And you'll be on the street. I regret saying what I said. Sounds like we're at a standoff, Paul. Continuing. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Easy. He's in his 20s, identifies as straight, but is bi-curious and occasionally fulfills those wants. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was a teenager, around 16 or 17, I was given a lot of drugs. Then the abuser would pull my pants down and give me blowjobs and touch me all over my body. It still, to this day, affects my emotions. When my wife touches me certain ways, it triggers a recoil effect and I have trouble being intimate. Any positive experiences with the abusers? He has recently died, which gave me a relief. He gave me gifts frequently, but that did complicate my feelings. Darkest thoughts. Being dominated by a black male. Being a sex slave. Darkest secrets. I've paid to be with a lady boy. I've slept with and messed around slash slept with my friend's boyfriend for years. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being dominated by a well-hung male in a rapist-type situation. Writing that makes me feel a little weird. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to be able to tell my wife that I've slept with males and a lady boy, but no, I would never be able to, just to lift the weight of my secret. What about starting with sharing it with someone else, like a therapist or a support group? What, if anything... Do you wish for that sexual flu- fluidity was more accepted in society? Have you shared these things with others? No, I've told some strangers that I'm bisexual. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's a new experience. I'm not sure if it will change anything, though. Well, you know, the, the thank you for sharing that, by the way. And, um, you know, there's a saying that if nothing changes, nothing changes. And... Um, I would just, for you, I would love to see you connect with other human beings and realize that you're not alone, you're not broken, you're not weird, Um, you're just another beautiful human being on this planet doing the best they can and sending you some love, man. This is a happy moment filled out by Frankenstein's monster. Uh, So you know this one's brimming with Uh, self-esteem. Let's see. Uh, She writes uh, her happy moment. I just had brain surgery. It has been really hard on me and my family. 
I hooked, oh, I know why she's calling herself Frankenstein's monster. It's been really hard on me and my family. I hooked up two of my kids with their school psychologist so that they would know who she was and be familiar with her. Anyway, on my third day home from the hospital, my 10-year-old came up to me and told me how glad he was to have me home, but how hard it has been. He then told me that he actually went and sought out the therapist on his own at school that day. He said it was really nice to talk to her, and they played some Jenga. It made me so proud to see that he knew when he needed extra support. It also made me rethink my shame in asking for mental health support with regards to my parents' judgment about therapy. I saw it as an act of strength in my son, not as an act of weakness, neediness, or attention-seeking. It makes me feel really good to know that he feels that he can turn to other people in the world for support and not just his parents, like we did a good job setting him up. I thought I would share this because I've always had so much shame about asking for help myself. Seeing it from a different perspective makes me see it as strong and wise. Don't wait until you crumble out of some stupid notion of bravery. Ah, that is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. Man, when I read something like that, I just, it rekindles my faith in society, families. Children, they're our future. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Little Piglet. She's in her 20s, identifies as demisexual and pansexual, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was never been never been sexually abused, but she's been physically and emotionally abused. A mother is supposed to be loving, nurturing, guiding, and understanding. My mother was none of these. Any positive experiences with the abuser? The only positive experience I've had with my mother was the day I moved out. She cried and apologized for, quote, how she used to be. But all I could think about was how just a week before we got into a massive argument that led her to call the police. I have no clue what the argument was, but it led her just a mere inches from my face ready to punch me. I ended up grabbing both her wrists, crossing her arms across her chest, and yelling in her face to stop. Her reason for calling the police? She told the police officer that she saw the anger in my eyes and had feared for her life if I were to stay that night. I slept in my car in a Walmart parking lot that night. Every time she talks to me to this day, I just think about punching her in the face. And then, quote, Thank you for apologizing, but you deserve this. Darkest thoughts. Between the ages of 12, the age when my mother and I moved from a large city to a small rural town, and 16, when I got my first job, I had repetitive dreams of violently stabbing my mother over and over again with a butcher knife and watching the blood pool around her. During that time, I was convinced that one of us would not be making it to my 18th birthday. Either I would commit suicide or I would snap and violently kill my own mother. Darkest Secrets I'm super involved with my local kink slash BDSM community for the past eight months, mostly with age play. About a few weeks ago, I told a friend in the scene about a rape fantasy that also involves age play. I love the idea of me being, quote, a child and being, quote, coerced to do sexual acts with encouragement of ice cream. Then when the ice cream is no longer enough to do what is asked, then I no longer get a choice in the matter, and I am then bound, gagged, and fucked until I cry preferably in the ice cream truck, but not necessary. 
I think I could be wrong that Avis rents one of those trucks by the hour. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be awesome if rent-a-car places just by the hour rented a place, rented a truck, and they would just have like signs that they could put up on it to, to feed the fantasy that you and your partner are engaging in. You know, it's like, what do you got? A plumber fantasy? All right. We're going to, we're going <laughs> to, your boy, we got the plumber outfit for your, for your boyfriend and we're going to put the paint on it and, uh, he should be there in about a half hour. That would be awkward though at the, at the rent a car counter. What can I help you with? Well, I have a rape fantasy that also involves age play. I love the idea of me being uh, a child and being coerced uh, to do sexual acts with encouragement of ice cream. Then when the ice cream is no longer enough to do what is asked, then I no longer get the choice in the matter and I'm bound, gagged, and fucked until I cry. And I'm just wondering if you uh, have an ice cream truck that I could make that happen. Well, let me look and see what we got. We don't, actually, but we do have a Toyota Corolla. And that would be an upgrade. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I still, to this day, would love to say to my mother's face, I hate you, but I can't do that because even though I do hate her, I'm not heartless. My family only consists of my mother, my sister, me, and now my one-year-old nephew. No grandparents, no cousins, no aunts, no uncles. My sister and I are all that my mother has. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to, to, to say uh, in all seriousness, thank you for sharing that about uh, the uh, you're connecting with your uh, kink community and connecting to people and indulging in your fantasies in a in a healthy uh supportive way that's that's fucking awesome that's fucking awesome uh what if anything do you wish for i wish my mother could have continued to be the person she was when i was five or six years old that was the last time i have a good memory of my mother and the last time i said i love you truthfully have you shared these things with others i've shared these things with a few random people here and there the one person that has most has had the most unhealthy response is a coworker and was once a really close friend. His response was, if I had your life, I would have killed myself a long time ago. Wow, there's no misinterpreting that. Talk about somebody making it about them. How do you feel after writing these things down? One part of me wants to curl up in a ball and cry for the next four hours, but another part of me feels like a small weight has come up, come off. And, and I think that is so normal because that's the pain coming out. You know, when the pain come up, comes out, it's fucking painful. But there's also a weight to it. So that is processing. That is like classic processing of trauma so fucking good on you man good on you anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences it may seem cliche the phrase it gets better but it does and don't be afraid to ask for help or tell someone else what's going on you rock thank you for that and then finally 
this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Cam. And she writes, The day I adopted my dog. When I was 19, I had a suicide attempt the week before Thanksgiving in 2017. I was taking antidepressants, and something in me broke and tried to kill myself with my boyfriend's handgun. I didn't see any psychiatrist or therapist after I got out of the hospital. I dropped out of college and wasn't working. I gained a lot of weight that I'm still trying to lose. Fast forward to March 2018. My boyfriend and I lived near an animal, animal shelter. One day I decided I needed to go see and play with dogs. I promised him that I wouldn't adopt one. Ha ha, what a fucking lie. I've always been a big dog lover and haven't owned a dog in years. We drive down and start to play with the dogs. Eventually, we go into the building where they keep the puppies and very small dogs. In one of the kennels was this very quiet yet calm terrier mix. Her name was Cow. She has shaggy hair and a red bandana. I instantly fell in love with her then and wanted to start crying. For the past several months up until then, I had very little emotion. Seeing that dog in the kennel made me feel alive in the longest time. Uh, I knew I had to adopt her. Luckily, my boyfriend was okay with this. When we took her out of the kennel to play with her, she just sat on my lap and ignored the dog toys. The whole time she was on my lap, she stared deeply into my eyes and made me feel so loved. She was also very well behaved on the leash when we walked her around the shelter and knew to pee and poop only on the grass. I talked to one of the volunteers about Cow's past. They said they found her in November, around the time our city had a big snowstorm. They believe she used to be owned by someone else based on her behavior and the fact that she was already spayed. They also think she was abused because when they quickly found out that she had a, a torn ACL in her back leg, just like me, Cow had a really shitty past. When we brought Cow home, uh, we changed her name. I instantly felt so much better. I felt motivated. Not only did I need to do regular dog care, I needed to make sure she got enough exercise to help strengthen her leg from the surgery. Instead of going outside our apartment once a week max, I was leaving our apartment several times a day for walks. I love my dog so much. It's crazy the impact that animals have on people. Without cow, I would probably have tried to kill myself again. Now, over a year later, I'm training Cow to get certified as a therapy animal to visit the local children's hospital. Cow loves, loves to visit the kids at the local playground, and they all know who she is. As soon as one of the kids see her, they shout, Cow, and come running over. She loves all the attention and pets, and yes, she is definitely spoiled. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. And... uh this this last week uh, has, has been with regards to the dog that I adopted two weeks ago, Gracie. Um, the the dog that she was rescued with, uh, his name is Ron, and he's younger than her, and, and he's uh, he's got that pup, puppy energy, and he's just a tornado. If something can be turned upside down, chewed or broken, he will he will do it. He will do it. Um, but she lights up when she's around him. Um, there, I've not seen Gracie interact with another dog that she just gets as as excited around. And the two of them are just spend the day. Um, and I haven't adopted Ron. I don't think I can I can handle his energy and the and the chewing of of everything. 
So, uh, my friend Taylor, who found both Gracie and Ron, uh, he's trying to place Ron in a, in a home, trying to find a, a home for him. But the two of them, it sounds like eight horses galloping when the two of them are running around my house. And there are wood floors, so <laughs> they're sliding around, you know, colliding with each other, wrestling, and they're just... It's it's just a beautiful thing. And I've smiled more in the last two weeks when I'm in my house um, than, than I can ever remember. I don't think I realized how empty my house felt until I adopted Gracie. And she's just, she's so awesome. She's so awesome. Um, anyway. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that that you're not alone. Um, help is out there if you're willing to take that first scary step and ask for it. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I stuck around. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely